Let us hear God's word from 1 Samuel 26 and verse 1. Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah opposite Jeshimon? And Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies, and understood <coughs> that Saul had indeed come. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp, with the people encamped all around him. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, You will go down with me to Saul in the camp. And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night. And there Saul lay sleeping within the camp, and his spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, Furthermore, As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. <clears throat> The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away and no man saw or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Now David went over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill far off, a great distance being between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? And Abner answered and said, Who are you, calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man, and who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And see now see where the king's spear is, and the jug of water that was by his head. And Saul knew David's voice, and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done, or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please... Let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So now, <clears throat> do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as one as when one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will harm you no more, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. 
Indeed, I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here's the king's spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. May the Lord repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord deliver you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and also still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. All right, well, as we begin here today, let us um, turn back a few chapters here and bring us up to speed here. Let's turn back to chapter 21 here briefly. And uh, if you pull out your maps at the same time, we will um, do a brief overview here in this way. And in chapter 21, remember David had fled, and uh, remember he was in Gibeah and came then to Nob. So you see that on your maps <clears throat> there uh, north uh, of Jerusalem. Comes to Ahimelech the priest, and then he goes uh, westward to Gath. There he is with Achish. Remember he pretended to be mad. In chapter 22, he flees from there and goes to Adalam. You see, that's just uh, eastward of Gath, a little bit south, about halfway between Gath and Bethlehem, again, a little south of that. And then, remember, he heads all the way down to Moab, way down to the bottom right, to protect his family. Comes to the stronghold, which may have been Masada, but it, there were other strongholds. And then he settles in the forest of Hereth, which you may recall is just east of Adullam and Calah, there north of Hebron. Then David is summoned by the men of Calah to help against the Philistines who had come to take their food. So David, you see there Calah, goes there and helps them. But then they're going to turn David over to Saul. So he flees, and we see that um, uh, in, uh, in chapter 23. In the meantime, of course, we see that Saul had killed the priests and the inhabitants of Nob. Now, in uh, chapter 23, toward the end, as uh, David flees Calah, he goes to the wilderness of Ziph. Now, on our maps here, that's basically between Hebron and Maon and Carmel, maybe a little bit eastward, okay, toward En Gedi. And uh, we see there, especially beginning in verse 19, the men of Ziph are basically wanting to turn David over. David escapes because God sent the Philistines, and he goes to En Gedi, which you see there along the Dead Sea. Then, in chapter 24, we see as he is there in one of the caves, Saul comes down to David. And, remember, he goes into the cave and <clears throat> while taking a potty break, basically. Uh, David is in the back of the cave with his men, and um, David refuses to kill Saul, even though Saul was in his hands in this way. David then exits the cave and reveals himself to Saul, who then promised to stop chasing David. Which brings us then to chapter 25, what we've been looking at here the last few weeks. And this is the situation there in Carmel and Maon, 
where Nabal was shearing the sheep, that whole situation where David had helped the shepherds, Nabal refused to give any kind of payment and gratitude. <clears throat> David plays the fool and wants to go kill Nabal, but God uses Abigail to stop both Nabal and David in their sin. Now, her efforts worked for David. He listened. Her efforts, in one sense, were for Nabal, but once he heard about it, he died. David was spared the sin of murder, but Nabal was struck down by the Lord. So we return now in this back and forth, David running and so forth. We return now to David and Saul, and Saul basically reneging on his promise. So as we look here then at chapter 26, verse 1 then says, Now the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding in the hill of Hakalah opposite Jeshimon? All right, so if you look at your map here again, remember we are south of Hebron here between Hebron and Carmel. This is the area of the wilderness of Ziph. We're not totally sure where Jeshimon and Hakalah are, but they are probably southward of that area, maybe more like in the Emiel of Carmel in that general area. All right, now, I called our attention briefly to chapter 23, verse 19. Let me now read it. Chapter 23, verse 19 says, Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah and said, or saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? It's not verbatim from chapter 26, verse 1, but it is very similar. And because of that similarity, some people think this is a repeated account. The one here in chapter 26 is the same as the one in chapter 24. Well, there are definitely some similarities, but there are plenty of differences for us to say, I think, rather easily, that this is definitely a different scenario. Some of the uh, uh, particulars are the same, but the overall one is different. And so once again, then, the men of Ziph are opposed to David. Now, yeah, maybe part of it is, here is David with 600 men. There were at least some wives and children along. You know, maybe it was at least 1,000 people hanging out in the wilderness of Ziph, and they were annoyed. Hey, get out of my backyard. And maybe that's all it was. But very likely, it is more than that, especially in light of the fact that they do it twice. And so here, the men of Ziph are really opposed to David. In other words, they are against God's anointed king, the king-elect. The men of Ziph prove themselves to be the seed of the serpent, even though they are in Israel. Now, it's probably fair to say that they are also afraid of Saul. They don't want to end up like Nob and so on and so forth. Um, But that doesn't seem to be their only motivation, like the men of Calah, for example. So... um, One last thing to mention about this area, and something that I think um, helps to accentuate what I just said. This area, assuming we're right, and we're on the southern end of this, or again, near the the MEL of Carmel, this is very barren. It's arid, it's sparsely populated, rugged wilderness. From the information that we have, and admittedly, we don't have a lot, but 
uh, it does not seem like David would have been bumping into other people very much and hanging out in their backyards. So because of that, and assuming that's true, that highlights the fact that the men of Ziph are just against David. They're opposed to the one God had chosen. All right, let's keep going then. Verse 2. And Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. All right, now let's turn back to chapter 24. We saw the connections in chapter 23. There are connections here with chapter 24, of course. And so note verse 2 here says, And Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So we have similarities there. The same 3,000 choice soldiers, this is the cream of the crop, you know, your best kind of soldiers here. But notice they go to En Gedi. They don't go to this area. So note that difference as we come back to 20, uh, chapter 26, verse 2. They come to the wilderness of Ziph uh, instead. So David here is now going to face 3,000 men like he did uh, before. Saul's best soldiers. Now, obviously, David is quite elusive. He's proven to be very effective in escaping Saul. So Saul thinks 3,000 versus 600 is a, a good uh, advantage for him. But remember, it didn't work before. So we'll see here. So verse 3, And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakalah, which is opposite Jeshimon, by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. All right, pretty straightforward here. Saul comes, sets up camp in this area where David is. Uh, but David is in the wilderness. Okay, it, we don't know exactly what that means. Maybe he is in a cave, like in chapter 24. Um, there were some in the area. But maybe he's hiding out among the trees and the rocks and so on and so forth. But he's there in the wilderness observing Saul's movements. And Saul here sets up camp. Now in verse 4, it says, David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul had indeed come. So this verse now tells us that David, at least initially, was not the one who saw Saul come. He stayed hidden, but he used some others to watch Saul's movements. Now the fact that it's spies plural means that there were at least two and maybe only two. Uh, obviously, if you're going to spy, you don't want, you know, two dozen people going around. You'll be more easily spotted. So maybe it was two, maybe it was seven, you know, we don't know. But um, it's possible they stayed concealed on the edge of the wilderness, like we see in verse 13. Um, maybe they dressed up as travelers or local shepherds. Maybe they even used some of the women and children as part of their disguise to see what Saul was doing. We're, we're not told. But the point here simply is that David is watching through the spies. So then verse 5 it says, So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Now Saul lay within the camp with the people encamped all around him. All right, now notice we have a rather lengthy description here of, of this. But notice where it begins. In verses 3 and 4, David was seeing through others, but now David sees for himself. He comes. 
Again, if you look at verse 13, maybe that's where he comes to look. That's where he's going to return to. Maybe it's a different place, but certainly reasonable to think maybe uh, it's the same uh, place for him to look down. Saul and the army, of course, are down below him, maybe in a valley, certainly a lower elevation. And what David sees is Saul is down there, lying down, sleeping. His cousin Abner, the captain of the army, lay near him as his bodyguard. Nothing unusual there. And then 3,000 men surround Saul. Again, that's nothing unusual. That's what you'd expect. The king's in the middle. He is now well protected in a a circle around him or rectangle or whatever it was, however they surrounded Saul, he is completely protected is the idea, right? So verse 6. Then David answered and said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. All right, now, first of all, notice the New King James says here that David answered, but we were never given a question. (laughs) So presumably there was an unwritten question, and David is responding to that. Maybe it was an unspoken one, and David responds to that. Whatever the case, he responds, and he says, okay, who's going to go with me down to Saul? Now, these two men then are mentioned. We have Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zeruiah, brother of Joab. All right, now let me just say a few brief words about these two men. The first man we don't really know much about at all. He's mentioned here, and as far as I could tell, he's not mentioned anywhere else. Okay, But notice, he's a Hittite. Now who else do we know that is a Hittite that was on David's mighty men? Bathsheba's husband. Now, are these two men related? Did they come from the same, you know, uh, broader family, clan I mentioned this morning, um, there among the Hittites? We don't know. But he was a non-Israelite. He's a Hittite who is now fighting for David, along with Uriah the Hittite. So, There are other passages, of course, that talk about David's mighty men, and we've touched on it at different times. And uh, so notice that David doesn't just have fellow Israelites with him, but some who are non-Israelites. And and the suggestion is then that this man came to faith, that he put his trust in Yahweh and left whatever gods he was worshiping among the Hittites. All right, well, we're, we're doing some guesswork with him. With the next man, it's a lot more clear. Abishai. Let's turn here to two passages. First of all, to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 2. And at the beginning of the chapter, we see here uh, the genealogy of Judah down to David. It starts there in verse 3. Uh, but let's pick up in verse 13. So 1 Chronicles 2, 13. Jesse begot Eliab his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shemaiah the third, Nethanel the fourth, Radai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, and David the seventh. Now you may remember, we looked at this passage in uh, chapter 16, and there's the question of whether or not there were seven or eight sons. But uh, anyway, here are these these, uh, brothers of David. Now verse 16, 
Now their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail, and the sons of Zeruiah were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel three. Okay, so they're actually... Um, a few different places where these men are mentioned. So let's look at one of those, and that is 2 Samuel chapter 23. Here in the list of David's mighty men, notice these verses. 2 Samuel 23, and if you look down at verse 18, verse 18 says, Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief, of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Then if you jump down to verse 24, you see Asahel is mentioned. Okay, so in other words, Abishai is David's nephew. Okay, so you have someone who was a non-Israelite. Now you have someone who's family. And so these two men, now Joab, of course, is very prominent in David's army and so forth. Um, and we'll see more of that in 2 Samuel. But uh, here we see a little bit about Abishai. So if you come back then to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 26, we see then David is asking these two men, who's going to come with me down to Saul? Now, um, if I were one of these two men, I think I would have said, David, what are you talking about? This is crazy. Right? We just read how completely surrounded Saul was. It's not like Saul's in the cave and completely vulnerable. Now, Saul is completely protected. But David wants to go down to Saul. This is risky at minimum, if not outright foolishness. Certainly they could be captured and even killed. But you see how David is acting with more confidence. David has been running for his life, and understandably so. But do you see the confidence here in David? In chapter 24, he's hiding in the cave. Here in chapter 26, he wants to go get Saul. Now, we don't know exactly what he's going to do yet, but do you see the difference? He's not running in quite the same way, you might say. He's not secretly cutting off Saul's robe. He's not debating whether or not he should kill Saul and maybe even make himself known. Here, he's going to confront Saul, it seems. Now, of course, we know the rest of the story. We know that's exactly what he's doing. And so David is standing on the promises of God. Remember, Abigail reiterated those promises in the last chapter. And maybe those words were ringing in David's ears, along with the ones he had heard from Samuel and Jonathan and so on and so forth. And David now has great confidence. I can walk right into the midst of Saul's army and nothing will happen to me because God said I am going to be king. Do you see his confidence here? Do you see how he's resting in the promises of God? And so something that was very different from the last chapter, and even very different from chapter 24. All right, now the end of the verse, Abishai says, 
I will go down with you. That pronoun is repeated. I, I will go down. Okay, so, yes, Uncle David, I'm coming along. You know, maybe, you know, he hit the buzzer before uh, Himelech here, you know. But uh, he, he wants to go. Now, now, think of this just a moment. David is likely around 28 years old now. We've been guessing at us to his age here all along. Hey, we have this 15-year window. We know in the next chapters that he is with Akish and Gath for about a year and a half. So this probably puts him about 28 years old at this point. So how old is Abishai? Well, it's his sister's son. So if his sister's son is old enough to fight with David, you assume the sister is quite a bit older than David. Maybe she was the firstborn child or something. We don't know. So is Abishai 20 or something like that? We don't know. But the invincibility of youth is uh, leading the way here, you might say. (laughs) But Abishai is also showing confidence in God here, along with David. So anyway, let's look then at verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp with a spear stuck in the ground by his head. And Abner and the people lay all around him. So David in his confidence here, not living in fear, not living with questions, he goes down. And David and his nephew creep into the camp under the cover of darkness. Now, surely there must have been fires, torches, lanterns, this kind of thing, for them to see enough to where they are going. But again, Saul's right in the middle. Abner's right beside him. The 3,000 men are surrounding Saul. This is a rather impossible task. Now, I think it's rather hard-pressed for us to imagine that all 3,000 men sleep as hard as I do. I can sleep through thunderstorms. You know, I don't hear anything. After a couple days after a baby is born, I sleep through everything. Maylene's the one that would get up and get the child. You know, I didn't know what was going on. But if a child comes down the steps to go to the bathroom, Naylene stirs. And you imagine there are at least some of these 3,000 men that would stir at the sound of David and Abishai. Now, we know what the answer is, but at this point, it's just like, Really? How come nobody is waking up? And so they come to Saul, and they have this spear, and this is Saul's infamous spear, the spear that had been thrown at David and even Jonathan. Surely David would recognize it. Um, Others had spears. Probably all 3,000 men had spears, but this one was the king's spear. And it was stuck in the ground by his head, likely to identify where the king was. It's kind of a a banner, you might say, or a flag. So, verse 8, Then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. Right? We, We just read about that. He killed 300 men by himself with his spear. So he's surely not going to miss this one man. Now, I think the assumption that we should make here in this verse is they are now actually standing over Saul and that they are not talking about this along the way or something. Now, maybe they did talk about it along the way, and now they're just using some gestures and they're not actually speaking audibly, but it sure sounds like they're right there. 
as they have this conversation. And so if you turn back to chapter 24 again, and this time look at verse 4, you remember what the men said to David. Maybe Abishai was part of it then, maybe not. But they said, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Well, now you have here these words of Abishai, and they are very, very similar. Same basic, can you say, temptation. David here is tempted to kill Saul by one of his men, by his nephew, in this case. And God did providentially give Saul into David's hand. We read the whole chapter, and and David says that. And so, clearly, God gave Saul to David. But just because God gave Saul to David doesn't mean that God wants David to kill Saul. Maybe Abishai is thinking, okay, you don't have to do it, and I'll do it for you. And he wants to take Saul's spear and drive it through him, and so on. So let's look then at verse 9. David now responds and says, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed? And be guiltless. You recall in chapter 24 that there are a few clues in there that suggest to us that David was debating to some degree what to do. And yet, right, he refused to do it. Remember, he did cut the robe of Saul. And remember, that is an act of aggression. And remember, David was remorseful. He, he wished he had not done that. So there's some kind of debate there in chapter 24, but not here. David immediately says, no, we cannot do this. So if you turn back to chapter 24 yet again, this time verse 6, David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So after he cut the piece of the robe off, David then says, that in chapter 24, but here in chapter 26, he says it right away. Simply, it's sinful to kill the king. God put the king there. It's sinful to kill him. Yes, Saul is guilty. And yes, Saul deserves to die. Especially think of how he had the priest killed and the people in Nob. He is worthy of removal as king. But David refuses to do it. Now again, as I've said before, if David were to have killed Saul, then anyone could have said David was unjust. He seized the throne, and it was hard enough for David to claim the, the allegiance of the northern tribes. Okay? So again, this is part of the apology of David. David is not the bad guy. Look, he refused to kill the king. And even if David had one of his men kill the king, and he didn't actually do it, it still would have had the same kind of trouble. And so David here is relying on God's providence. So note then what he says in verse 10. David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. God's providence brought Saul within David's grasp. But God's providence must be what ends Saul's life. 
either by God directly striking down Saul, like he did with Nabal, or Saul dying naturally of old age, or Saul dying in battle, which, of course, we know that's the one that happened. But David will not do this. He will not take matters into his own hands. Okay? And so David here will not strike down a defenseless man, but even more, he will not strike down the Lord's anointed. He will not do it. Notice there is no inkling here whatsoever that David says, hey, wait, no, we can't do that. We might get caught. There is none of that here. It is completely, if you will, the right thing to do for David. So in verse 11 then, he says, The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. All right, so we start here with more refusal. And then he wants these two items. Note, no cutting of Saul's robe here. Again, remember that was an act of aggression. This is not. Here, David wants Abishai to grab the symbol of the king, the symbol of Saul's authority as king, as well as his water bottle, basically. So verse 12, So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head, and they got away, and no man saw or knew it or awoke. For they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. All right, David and... Abishai succeed, and pretty straightforward. They take the spear, they take the jug, they creep out, they are not detected. And yet, if it weren't for the last line, we'd still be scratching our head. How is this possible? We might conclude that God had something to do with it, uh, but now we are told specifically. You know, even a hobbit with a magic ring would raise suspicions among this mass of men. But... You're told that God is on David's side. That Yahweh caused all 3,000 men to sleep deeply. And you might wonder, this word to sleep deeply is the same one in Genesis 2. And so as God caused Adam to sleep deeply and he took a rib, so here these men sleep deeply and David takes the spear and the jug of water. All right. Now, do you see the point that is rising to the top here? In one sense, it doesn't matter what David does because God's going to be on his side. Now, we can't take that too far. On the other hand, you see how this has been the case. God has chosen David. And surely when David obeys, we see God is on his side. But even in the last chapter, when David disobeyed, God was on his side there, too. He stopped David in his sin. Now, this does not mean that David was never punished. Obviously, the whole situation with Bathsheba and the census, those two situations especially, we see David facing God's judgment. But here's another situation where um, God is on David's side. Chapter 19, remember? Saul was coming after David. And the spirit came upon Saul and he started prophesying. He took off his clothes and he couldn't do anything. And David got away. In chapter 23, a word came from the Lord and he left Calah. 
the end of chapter 23, the Philistines came and Saul was just about to grab David and, and he fails. In chapter 24, even when David was captured, he gave himself up, God protected him. In chapter 25, God used a woman to help David and now here he sends this deep sleep. You see this one thing after another, God is on the side of his people. Even when we are facing those who want to harm us, that want to hurt us in one way or another, and it may be something rather small, the bully on the playground, or it may be a globalist um, massive authority that's just trying to take over the world that is happening here today. Whatever it is, God is on our side. And we can take confidence in that. Um, some of you might be familiar with the animated program called Torchlighters. And it is something that uh, our family has been exposed to. And, and they actually have it on at different times during the week. I think it's chapter or, uh, Channel 19 in Pittsburgh, something like that. Anyway, here just, uh, was it last night we were watching, Matthew, about Mary Slusser. And she was a, an was it Irish or Scottish woman, Irish woman who ministered uh, there and then in Africa. And it starts with this bully making fun of her and had basically a sling and was swinging this rock around. It was hitting her in the head just enough to hurt her, but not really hurt her. And yet she stood her ground with her faith in the Lord. And we see that happening at different times throughout this episode. And of course, it's based on, on real life. Um, But through the whole thing, we see that she is trusting in the Lord. She knows that God is on her side. No matter if there are poison berries or these tribal people who are believing in other gods and want to kill and so on and so forth, she's trusting in the Lord. Um, This is what we're seeing. David's confidence here is at a high. And we can have that same confidence. Whether it's a mean boss, whether it's, you know, some IRS agent of these 87,000 that are going to come and try to shut us down or whatever it is. You know, whatever the situation, we can have confidence that God is on our side. It doesn't mean we, you know, we have diplomatic immunity, you can do anything. But it does mean that we can rest and we can have confidence. When God saves us, and especially when we are seeking to serve him, he's with us. He fights for us. He leads us. He guides us. And even when we get off track, like we saw in the last chapter, he brings us back to himself. And so let's have the same kind of confidence. We're not called to be a king, but we are called to be little kings and queens in God's kingdom and to serve our God. And so note the encouragement here. But that doesn't mean we're overly foolish. You might say David was foolish to walk into the camp. But notice what he does in verse 13. Uh, David went over to the other side and stood on the top of a hill afar off, a great distance being between them. So when David reveals himself, he's not standing right by Saul. He did that in chapter 24, but he doesn't do that here. He's whatever, 100 yards away, half a mile away, whatever it was. 
And so David escapes and puts himself in a safe location before he speaks to Saul. So in chapter 24, verse 8, he comes blurting out of the cave, but he's more careful here. All right, now, through all this, we might wonder, why is David doing this? Why not just run away, go somewhere else? Why does he, in essence, confront Saul? Well, Saul did promise in chapter 24 to stop, and he has reneged on his promise. And really, David is holding him accountable. You you didn't listen. You, You didn't do what you said. And in his greater confidence, with his act of faith, he steps forward in this way. And so he takes the symbol of the king's power and rule and, notice, claims it for himself. Saul, yes, I could have killed you. That's part of what David is saying. But David is also saying, I am the rightful king. Now, I'll develop that more next week, but you see what he's doing. He also takes this symbol of life, not just the symbol of authority, but the symbol of life, this pot of water. This jug. He doesn't take Saul's life, but he takes the symbol of life. And that too is saying, look, I could have killed you, but I've actually preserved your life here in this way. And so once again, like in chapter 24, like in other places we have seen, now 3,000 people see that David is not the bad guy. Again, we see this apology for David. David is not a king like the nation's. So I think our primary point here is what I've already said. Notice the confidence here. Discerning God's providence can be challenging, but when we are confidently resting in the promises of God, it isn't all that difficult. The better we know the scriptures, the more we rely on the Lord, the less confusing it is for us when God sends various providences our way the less likely we are to misinterpret and manipulate those things. So we we said more about that in chapter 24 because it was more of a debate for David. There is no debate here. And so he takes God's providence, but he takes God's promises to help and interpret God's providence. And so note his willingness to stand here in this way. And so... The other thing you might remember from chapter 24 that I developed for us is that sometimes doing the right thing is hard and sometimes doing the right thing is risky. In chapter 24, David humbled himself at Saul's feet. David here is standing at a distance, but in both times, he does not take matters into his own hands. He did the right thing and it was risky for him, but he is trusting God to fulfill his promises. David doesn't take any shortcuts here to get to the throne. He relies on the Lord. Now this means he's going to wander for maybe two more years. But he does what the Lord wants him to do, no matter what. Now as you know, uh, I've been um, saturating myself with the teachings of the critical race theory and the critical theories in general. And uh, the more I learn, the more I I just can't, for the life of me, understand how anyone, any professing Christian, would think that there is anything good about it. It's just so 
blatantly clear that is contrary to the scriptures. Now, the reason I bring this up is simply this. David, you might say, is picking a side. But we as Christians need to do the same thing today. David is picking, uh, picking the side of righteousness. And that side may lead to hardships. And it has been for him. But we need to do the same. We've had people, as we've communicated, that have not wanted to host us in our conference. And the arguments we've heard simply is, we don't want to take sides. We don't want to offend anybody. Well, at some point, we have to take sides. We have to stand on the promises of God, no matter what happens. And David is doing that here. David is doing this all along. And he has certain promises that we don't have. <laughs> but still, David is not willing to take matters into his own hands. And so, as I've been dealing with different people who are opposing what we're trying to do, I've been trying to do the same kinds of things. Let us do the same thing at work, at school, with our family members, and so forth. Let us rest in the providence of God and the promises of God through it all. By the way, I did hear this afternoon that Calvary is willing to say yes and allow us to meet there. So um, we're very thankful. <clears throat> all right. Well, we're stopping right here in the middle of all this, and we'll pick up with this then, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for uh, your word here for us. We thank you for this story of David and Abishai against Saul and so forth. We are thankful, Lord, that um, even as we saw this morning in Psalm 107, that all things, hardships and blessings, come from your hand. And as these things go back and forth, and we have blessings sometimes one day and hardships the next, and it just seems to change all the time, we are thankful, Lord, that we can rest in you. And surely David has faced many hardships here, and we'll see more of those as we go forward. But we are thankful, Lord, that with David we can rest securely in your promises. We can rest securely in your hand, knowing that you govern all things. And so help us then to live a life of obedience and not take shortcuts, not take matters into our own hands, but to rest in you and in your word, and in the fact that you control all things. And so may we have this confidence uh, in, in our daily things. Lord, we pray for your mercies and your grace in this way. And so we pray all this then in Christ's name. Amen.